0: Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games.
1: And today is a design focused episode on prototyping and playtesting. Big topic, but it should be a fun discussion where we'll be, you know, just scratching the surface on. These incredibly important concepts in designing board games, and perhaps they'll lead to further discussion in our Discord or on this show down the line. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into it, we're going to read another review. Uh, So, thank you so much for keeping the review train going. Once again, if you want to help us keep Going, keep growing as a show, and keep reading your great reviews. Please leave one wherever you're listening to this podcast.
0: Brendan, over to you. Insightful, funny, and engaging reflections on board games. That's the title of the review. And this is from Crusoe of the Ship from Great Britain. So thank you so much for leaving a review. And here it is Decision Space has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. The discussions around board games, sometimes specific ones, and sometimes around a theme, are always insightful, funny, and engaging. Jake and Brendan and the guests they sometimes invite on go deep into why games challenge and entertain us in the ways that they do. If you're a player or a designer or just curious about board games, there's lots for you to discover here. 10 out of 10. Winky face and that's an emoticon not written out Winky face
1: i love that little nod where we always say that these reviews are 10 out of 10 despite them giving us only five stars so appreciate that uh and i think the other great thing about getting the reviews brendan not only does it help our show it just makes me feel so happy to read them so this one no exception awesome review thank you so much
0: yeah thank you Crusoe.
1: okay so let's
0: get into it is a big topic. I came to Jake and I was like, Jake, let's talk about prototyping or playtesting. And Jake was like, okay, I'm in a galaxy brain here. Why not both? So I was talked into doing one episode about both prototyping and playtesting. So I just want to at the outset say that this is not a how-to. There's no one 60-minute podcast that could ever teach you how to prototype and playtest your game uh, or your game idea. This is a process that I think it just both of these massive topics just take months weeks years maybe to figure out the best version of prototyping or the best version of playtesting that will serve you and i think maybe for some of you this can be the start of that journey and for others you've probably been doing these things yourself for a long time and i think either way for us this is more if it's not a how-to it's more of a testimonial discussion about how we prototype and how we play test games. And hopefully you'll you'll have some uh, little tidbits that you pick up along the way and I know no doubt it'll be a good discussion.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Brendan. That was a great primer. So, maybe we should start with one of the most important components and arguably the best component ever in board games. I've I've often said that my favorite mechanic in games is drawing a card. So, <laughs> let's start there. Cards, Brendan. How do you personally make cards for the games that you design
0: yeah no thank you for that question jake so the first prototypes i ever made were of card games and to this day right all my published games so far have been card games just straight up and a lot of the designs that i work on are card-driven games uh so this is the topic that i have the most experience on by far and i think the number one thing with prototyping it's kind of the number one thing with playtesting in my mind is the whole goal is to minimize the speed to play just never just minimize the speed to play when you have an idea time Your goal, to
1: play exactly you want to this, maximize the
0: speed it, yes thank okay. you <laughs> yeah like, you, something yeah, about minimize. minimize the
1: speed is like wait we're going slow <laughs> slow and steady no fast and reckless that's oh what God. we're here to re- recommend
0: exactly fast and reckless thank you jake maximize the speed to play minimize the time to play so when i first started prototyping cards i would just print out stickers and stick them to prototype To poker cards that felt like a really nice way to have clean art and I I thought it was like it was really nice to be able to roll up with a poker deck covered with these like you know nicely designed stickers that I created essentially and stuck them on but it took forever and it meant that prototyping was really tough so I quickly realized that was holding me back from figuring out the best way to basically iterate on my game so the number one thing i recommend is if you don't have to make a prototype don't the first and best way to test a game or a game system is to just use elements from other games that you can have so one example is if you just need numbers on cards don't make your own just go pilfer them from a game you own and use those and you can do this right to play to prototype uh maybe a whole game if it's a simple card game or maybe if it's a bigger game you are doing this to pull little elements to just play test a system. So your prototype doesn't even have to be something you can show other people. It can be something you just need functional elements that you can bring together to make something interesting that you can toy with and see how it works. So that's my like number one. But now to Jake's real question, cards. So I I find my journey with prototyping cards has really changed over time. Right now I use a combination of Excel To create a spreadsheet and then InDesign and data merge to design the cards. So I create like my whole list of all the cards that I want with image names and text etc in a spreadsheet and I find this to be really helpful because I get this like zoomed out view where every what every card will be what all the elements are what text on it might be what images I want to insert. And then I can use that using this cool function called data merge to go into InDesign and basically create a card template and then say, okay, plug this element into into a card here. This element of every card goes here. And this element of every card goes here. And then you very quickly can just like create the whole deck of cards without laying them out individually. So that's roughly my process right now. So people might be surprised to learn that all of my card game designs just start with, an Excel spreadsheet. And
1: people always talk about boards as like being like this is just an Excel sheet. No, it's the card games all along. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and originally, Jake, what I did was I would go into a Word document and just like I make a quick, rough, four, like four by two grid, so eight cards per sheet uh throw in some text boxes throw in some images that's quick enough too i find that works but it's just cleaner for me at this point to like design in excel because i can do numbers math along the way too. do some like design thinking type stuff Mm. find some like what's the average value of a potential hand or all these things and then kind of go from there how do you like you prototyped a game recently yeah i don't know how much you want to talk about it but what was your approach to all
1: about it so i've been working on this game called chicken wild and i'll be showing it off for the first time ever having strangers play test my game in October at the stone Meyer design day. So I've been, you know, trying to gear up for that. So I've been, I play test my game a lot. I'll talk more about that later. The way I created my cards was I used Canva, a free, you, you can pay for premium, but it's a web based illustrator. Photo yeah. Photo editor or whatever. Yeah. So I, I designed my cards in there and I just used kind of like the box making tool to create, nine boxes for the cards that I can print off, cut out, and then slide into a sleeve. So that has been my method of creating cards. So and then I would just use like a bulk keyforge deck, which I see that you've listed here as well, uh, to kind of just be like the card stock. Uh so that's in the back of the sleeve. And then I have my own cutout sheet of paper slid in front of it. Uh so and and voila a very simple and functional actually looks quite nice card for my game the other thing i've done and i don't know if we'll be talking about this later let me just scroll down was that i was able to using that same method i was able to quickly get it uploaded into tabletop simulator Mm. and the way i did that was i took the image of my card I, i so i have my the one sheet that has nine cards and i would kind of zoom in and use the snipping tool on windows to cut out my individual cards save those as a file and then once you have that you can very easily uh, use like the deck importer tool for tabletop simulator to you know quite quickly get a game up and running there uh which especially a a card game especially a card game and, and for somebody with zero like coding or anything, you know, that is a very easy and quick way to get a game to the table where I can start fiddling around with it. You know, it would take much less time and effort to get a game, get a car, a deck of custom cards into tabletop simulator than it does onto the table. Cause there I have to like use scissors. Right. I find that like the bulk of my time has gone. <laughs>
0: I actually, it's so interesting that you mentioned tabletop simulator, because the thing that I'm because I want to do things as fast as possible, I tend, it makes me lazy, uh, because sometimes the fastest way is just doing it the way you've already done it and not investing more time and making the process faster in the end, which is the right answer. But Prior to the pandemic, I was just playtesting in person a lot, but then I had a need to playtest on Tabletop Simulator. And one of the other really nice things about doing deck design in InDesign is you can export as a PDF and print it like in nice sheets with crop marks. But you can also export them all as PNGs or JPEGs. So then you can drag them into Tabletop Simulator, that deck builder, really quickly. Jake, I'm really curious, though. I want to talk about the cards because I think that's going to be an interesting topic. And then also, but what sleeves do you use?
1: Dragon shields. I feel like oh, we talked God. about this in our bonus episode. That's just what I have on hand. Oh,
0: my God. Luxury.
1: Yeah. We know art and presentation and components means a ton to people. Why not just use that like little edge? Obviously, there, there are penny sleeves that would work as well. But, you know, I have dragon shields. I'm gonna I'm going to use them on my game. Totally. I I'm worthy, Brendan. I have value.
0: <laughs> I love it. No, I haven't used dragon <laughs> shields at all that. so I use Titan Titan Shields because I found they're a nice like in-between ground. And something that I like to do for prototyping is have lots of different colored cards on file on hand or sleeves so that I can easily make different types of cards. So because of that, I tried to go budget so I could just have tons of colors because I never know what I'm gonna need. But that's another tip that I have is when you're just starting to prototype, don't bother with card backs. Don't even, you know, unless it's important to you the design of your game and you need multiple elements, just don't make a card back. Just No, use why sleeves. would you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then...
1: My card backs are exactly the same as Keyforge. I hope that won't nice. be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
0: awesome. <laughs> well, okay. So this was a, an interesting thing among game designers that I've hung out with in the past is it turns out like having access to lots of nicely printed cards is a huge advantage and keyforge is an interesting game where you end up with lots of decks that maybe you're never going to play just by nature of or maybe you will maybe you'll play it once or twice but you have decks that you're ultimately going to return to so KeyForge has a- actually been amazing to me because for a long time i would sleeve with like old pokemon cards yeah. that i had access to which was really expensive because i was basically cracking booster packs to get cards not exactly but kind of to make prototypes so keyforge changed everything and you can buy bulk keyforge decks so like 36 cards for like a buck i can't imagine
1: cents. that yeah it's cool i mean i wonder if keyforge is almost even would approach like magic the gathering bulk I, but I, yeah. I would think you could get magic the gathering bulk cards cheaper for like pennies for, you think you so know i think so yeah
0: i tried to buy some bulk card, magic cards from my local game shop one time and they were like i don't know well yeah but you gotta that, go online that was probably just that shop okay go online and find like bulk on ebay 1000
1: magic cards twenty four eighty seven. A uh, 1000 magic cards 329 on ebay
0: three dollars 29 <laughs> <laughs> okay wait we eBay. cracked the code <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and maybe, clicking on this listing. yeah maybe you have to pay shipping but that's that's a great deal i guess the final thing to touch on is just like what's a good way to get quick icons or art which it's always nice to have a little bit of icon iconography and art on your cards even if you don't want to spend too much time because you are trying to like you want to increase the playability to the point where people aren't struggling with your prototype to understand the rules of your game uh so that is key right like Minimize the speed to play, but don't sacrifice the quality of the play playtest by being so fast without, with what you're doing that others can't participate. So one resource I just really wanted to name that I think is awesome is thenounproject.com. This is a free website where you can quickly get PNG files or, or whatever type of files. PNGs are just like transparent image files, uh, which work well on cards really easily of almost anything. Uh, so I find that these are tremendously helpful, a tremendously helpful site for just like finding quick image files. How did you make your art for Chicken Wild, Jake?
1: Well, uh, Canva has similarly like an elements tab. So I okay. just like type in chicken and then it has some nice uh, free. A lot of them will be like gated where you'd like have to like pay for like premium. premium, but I was able to find everything I needed as free things. And the nice thing about that is that because they're like already in the right file type or whatever that you can like manipulate the colors within Canva really easily. Nice. Uh, so, so that wasn't, that was nice. I mean, I I've used, you know, I've been really happy with using that service. Another thing I was going to say you maybe think of too if maybe you get a little further down the line with your game and you're like okay I'm kind of set on sort of the the basics of this and you want to add some art I think the AI generating art services like I think it's called like crayon or or whatever it is is a really good way to get some like pre-production art to just like mm. you know if you wanted to do that just to evoke you know, kind of a a certain vibe or a certain like type of creature, not saying, you know, I, I think once you're ready to like your final, I would encourage people to, you know, use an actual artist and, you know, pay equitably, especially if you're a game producing company. But yeah, so that's not, you know, I'm not saying like use AIR all the time, but I do think that is a kind of a fun tool in the design and development phase of the game
0: yeah a few people who i've talked to who are like very new designers who always ask the question like do i need to display art for my game or will publishers and the answer is almost always publishers will take care of the final art of your game so that's something to just keep in mind too just borrow stuff off google it's okay so long as you don't sell it and it's just for your prototype but i guess the final thing that i had in mind with cards too that i wanted to mention jake is they also in terms of the maximize speed to play test minimize time to play test thread is there dry speed to play test.
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah I, I know what you're saying but you know
0: just get it play it as fast as possible fast make and your, reckless yeah fast, and, fast reckless. and reckless yeah let's go with that they make dry erase cards so you can use these cards you can write directly on them with a dry erase marker so those can be really handy in the early stages if you have ideas that you're teasing out and you want to, I found them especially helpful when I'm working with someone else, we can sit there and kind of like think through and draw with dry erase cards, uh, dry erase markers on these actual cards. You can shuffle them into a deck. They're a little pricey, but because they're dry erase, you can use them again. So if that's something that is of interest to you and you think that would fit with your creative style, I want to mention it because I have them. I don't use them that much anymore, but I I like them and they've spawned some neat ideas uh, for me. All
1: right, let's move on to boards. Brendan, I will leave this to you because I have not yet created any games that... No, that's not true. I did create a for my beer pong the strategy game. <laughs> it plays a lot like Robo Rally, if you've heard of that. Uh, I used a pizza box type of cardboard, not actually a pizza box, that'd be greasy, but you know, like the like brown cardboard, corrugated. corrugated, And I just drew onto that with a a marker, a Sharpie, and that worked perfect.
0: Nice. But all I needed was
1: a simple grid. So maybe for something more complex where I would be wanting to design it on a computer, if I had to think on the spot, I might print it off and glue it to the same corrugated cardboard type of setup
0: what yeah. do you do interestingly i used to do that so i would go and i would design a board in like word using a bit pretty big like canvas size or in photoshop and then i would print it out and i'd print it on slightly thick paper and then i'd use spray glue adhesive and stick that to cardboard
1: oh fancy
0: yeah because i wanted to have like a kind of heavier board but i found over time that that was too messy too slow I was spending too much time. I love your idea of just drawing a board physically on a pizza box. I think that's brilliant or you know like a metaphorical pizza box. But what I do now is I actually I just design it in Photoshop. Uh I just I try to keep it really abstract. I think you can get bogged down with maps and thinking about typography, or now I'm thinking of like topology and stuff, or what do the physical spaces actually look like. But with a lot of maps, right, it's just like a network of connected spaces. So El Grande, every region is connected to some number of other regions. So you can just think of that like as a node, and that one node connects to other nodes. And obviously, on the El Grande map itself, someone's gone on and they've actually drawn a really nice map, but you don't need to do that. You can just take the, the root way out, which is the root way out is the map is just that network of nodes, little dots, and then connected lines between them to show how they connect. And there's obviously gorgeous art in root that explains this sort of network of spaces. But I found that keeping it abstract works for testing the functional elements of your game, and it doesn't require a lot of skills of sort of thinking through actual map drawing. So I'll just go into Photoshop. I'll add shapes. I'll draw lines between those shapes. Usually I'm using circles. I'll draw lines between those shapes. I try to keep it as simple and abstract and readable as possible. If there's text, I'll add text in there. So recently I've been working on this area control game that's card driven. So that's what I did for this. Is I just went in there and I found that for that game I didn't need a map it was too big so I could fit it on an 11 by 17 piece of paper Uh, but a couple games I've done in the past I've needed more so what I'll do is I'll just print them on regular 8.5 by 11 and then tape the sheets together
1: yeah it's interesting because like it seems like the further along in the process the more you'll be like I want this to be fun to play Yeah. but in that first play test you don't care about that right you just want to see like does this work at all because there's going, you know there's going to be a million iterations or whatever that come out of it. You're not just going to hit it. Right. So spending the time and effort to make the component feel good to use just doesn't really make a lot of sense. I had the opportunity to play test uh, expeditions Mm. by a recent Stonemeyer games Games release. And I played like a very early version of this Uh, and the prototype that I played was, it was like hexagon tiles that had been printed on paper and cut out and I th- I can't remember exactly what the cards were, but it, it was you know our method, right? It was that level of thing, and I, I was kind of surprised. Like this is like Stone Games, and right, and the prototype is just printed out paper.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Maximize how quickly you play the game. Yeah, that'd do so it right at that time. you know,
1: so I think th- I think that you know gives a lot of credibility to this this idea that really probably my assumption would be that people who are getting into design the first time are making the mistake that. Uh, you and I did of spending too much time and effort on making those components similar to the games that we're familiar with right yeah. which are nice chunky boards
0: yeah the second I get glue out I have to think to myself long and hard if I'm if I've gone down the wrong the wrong path and the answer <laughs> is usually yes I'll also mention some people like to use excel to make boards Excel is actually works really well for multi-page printing uh, and it is all set up as grids. So sometimes Excel actually is a pretty quick way to get a, a nice board out there.
1: You can make it like a hexagon board. I've seen people like making hexes in Excel. Okay, right? that's
0: madness. Yeah. <laughs> but that's cool. So that's that's another option as well. Can we, Should we talk? I feel like that's like kind of hammer through these next ones really quickly. Yeah. So tokens. One thing that I discovered recently, Jake, is they sell like one inch circle punches. So you can just buy this nice little punch. So for a long time, I would carefully cut circles out of sheets of paper that's terrible it's not don't fun. do that yeah. don't do that buy a one-inch or a a one-and-a-half-inch circle punch, and all of a sudden, you'll have wonderful tokens really quickly. Another trick, if you want double-sided tokens, this is one place where I feel glue is somewhat warranted. You could just print double-sided, glue two sheets of paper together, and then punch out your your sort of one-and-a-half, one-inch punches. Get some nice little round tokens. They also make hex punches. So if you ever wanted to, like, prototype hexagons, you can do that. But I think I definitely recommend using slightly heavier paper for that, too.
1: Yeah, I uh I got the white game design box. Are you familiar with this product? I'm not. It's like a it's game called crafter? shoot. I'm gonna look in my closet really quick at okay. what it's actually called.
0: Well, Jake is doing that, I'm gonna talk about this other thing that I have recently started doing that I think is a, a quick version of the double sided double sided token trick that you can glue and then connect two All things right. together.
1: I'm back. I've got in my hands, the white box, a game design workshop in a box. And what this comes with is a book that has like essays on game design. Oh, I have not read. I'm sure Brendan would have read it right away, (laughs) but that's not me. (laughs) And then, uh, it comes with like a punch board with like, uh, showing Brendan, like some usable components, some like hexes, some random stuff and like a bunch of cubes and like chits. So I've used this for all of my token component needs. I got this as a gift. I don't know what the price point is on it. It's certainly not worth it. You know, I'm sure it costs more than if you were like, just like sourcing the materials inside, but it's handy to have cubes, dice, other kinds of chits and tokens all in one place. So I've been really happy with it.
0: Nice, that's awesome. While you were running to quickly check on that, I was telling a quick anecdote and I just want to finish it. Which is that I found recently that if I ever want something to be a little bit thicker, but I don't want to take the time of gluing it, a nice trick is to use clear tape and print sort of double-sided. So if you print a token with the front and the back adjacent to each other, you can print it and then fold it and then just like encase that in clear packing tape. And that'll give you a really nice durable token that's like kind of fun to play with. Nice yeah
1: all right so anything else brendan do you use a 3d printer to print miniatures for your
0: game designs i i do not
1: wow do amateur amateur hour <laughs> uh i had my buddy print me 10 mini solo cups for my beer pong the strategy game and a little teeny ping pong ball nice
0: that's awesome <laughs> on I a stand it. yeah i think it, did it you was, need them
1: of course i mean of obviously not but uh, it is quite fun and satisfying. I mean, I don't know. It was like just, I think he had just got it and was like needing ideas for like things to print. And he did that for me and that was really nice. And uh, yeah, it's a fun, fun little miniature to have. So it's cool that that is something theoretically accessible to people. I mean, I know there are like die cutters and all kinds of like fancy stuff that more professional prototypers use, but suffice it to say, quick is better. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is a paper, a printer and a computer and like really basic understanding of whatever your preferred program
0: is. And I definitely do know that for some people, the process of making prototypes is cathartic and will help sort of release creative energy. I I found as time goes on, that doesn't work that way for me. But at one point in time, I was working on a Metal, Metal Gear Solid prototype and for this, I made little cardboard boxes out of cardboard boxes. So I cut them to make like actual miniature cardboard boxes and then taped them all back together. And then Snake could hide in those cardboard boxes. So it was a fully, this is kind of like my version of your beer pong story. That game did not go anywhere. Uh, but I think it kind of laid the groundwork for Unrest, which is coming out now, which I'm really excited about. A new game that'll be out for me this fall. Uh, but anyway, I spent probably five hours on those cardboard boxes that now are just in a junk pile. But that's okay. That's usually what happens with those.
1: Well, Brendan, if it's already with you, let's move on to playtesting, which I think might be oh. an even more interesting conversation.
0: Yes, but I have one last thing. Oh I want to sorry. mention one more product. I'm so sorry. Cubes. The most useful prototyping objects I've ever owned is a you can go onto Amazon and Google like or just go on the internet and search for like counting cubes. And these are products where you can buy like a thousand cubes or 500 cubes of 10 different colors with 50 of each. They can be a little bit pricey, so if you want to give away a lot of prototypes, there's probably more cost-efficient ways to do that, but I've just found them to be incredible. You can use them for almost anything. They're really useful just to have 10 different colors of 50 cubes around.
1: I've used cubes in many of my designs, and by that I mean
0: all three oh, or four nice designs. nice that's <laughs> awesome okay that's pivot to talking about playtesting like you wanted to and how do you want to structure this jake i have some notes here but you have lots of recent experiences and i have some recent experiences
1: yeah i mean I, i've been why don't we start here i've been playtesting my game chicken wild a ton because i have as i mentioned i'm going to be showing it off at the design day in october And I'm also have just a lot of travel and uh, things that are taking up my weekends, especially between now and then. So I've been trying to get out early and I'm just a little bit nervous because I've never really shown a game off to strangers before that it's not going to be fun because I've done a lot of designs in the past that are like, we'll get to a point where I'll be like, this is a functional game, but it's like missing that element of being fun. So I'm really trying to like, I think that is maybe like the biggest barrier for, in my mind, uh, creating a game is like it's not coming up with an idea or getting it to paper or getting it to work. It's like why making it fun. So that's what I've been playtesting the heck out of this game for. And Brendan, it has gotten into some really interesting places, I would say, because of I, so maybe let me pose a question to you to start. Okay. How different does your final product game get from where you started? Like, is it typically like, like when you, with Enchanted Plumes, for instance, one of your published games or Resist, you know, when you started, did you have like all the mechanics mostly the same and it was just about massaging the mechanics or were whole new systems included uh, and then excluded at certain points? I'm really curious to hear.
0: Yeah. So, okay, let me run down all three published games so far. So for ramen ramen, completely different game published than where I started, like, just a totally different game, it was gonna be like, collaborative, it's no longer that at all. And it completely shifted from where it was, all the systems were totally thrown away. But it's, without a doubt, the same game that I started designing. Enchanted plumes, the core system of building out the peacock feathers, always the same. The rules for what dictated how you could structure them and go through completely the same, but what totally changed was all the supporting mechanics, the mechanic around game end with the peahen, the mechanic around a train that you can swap with, and the filtering your hand at the start. All of those are things that came in to make the game better, but that core system of building peacocks stayed the same. And then with Unrest, that game really oh, changed. No, resist. you're good. Unrest. No, you're good. At one point in time, so one that game's a game where one player has a deck of cards and they're trying to get cards into these different districts and the other player's playing as an empire and they have four tokens that they can use and their powerful actions to respond to try to prevent certain objectives that the rebels have. And they use those cards over and over. So in that game, the structure of those two players was the same, but a difference is is that originally there were just tons of tokens on the empire side and they were drawing from a bag of tokens so you never really had information so that totally was redefined but then the other core elements are pretty similar and that I did play test with a standard deck of playing cards to start Yeah
1: interesting yeah so you kind of have the whole variety I have found that with chicken wild like the process has been like, I feel like I'm Michelangelo, like allowing the block of granite to like reveal itself. Like, sure. I feel like I'm just like guiding this game, like towards what it wants to be, even if it's what I don't want or feel comfortable mm. with. So basically the idea for this game, uh, I first thought of it when we were playing and reviewing Colorado, um, literally like what if there was a game like colorado but instead of the central mechanic there is adding cards to different rows i was like what if all the cards start out in play and people are sort of revealing information about what what those cards are so basically you have a bunch of face down cards and i was really didn't i don't i know people don't like memory games right uh, hidden trackable information is like a big problem for many people so originally it was like you can get information by looking at face down cards and then you can put your cube on that card so that you can always look back at it right so once you've seen something you can always see it but then like playing the game and playing the game like the it was just so fiddly to do that and now and eventually when i was playing with my friends paul solomon friend of the show uh and pete who i've also talked about on this show I was like I just want to try it one time just a memory element. Uh and we so we played the same way I had been playing, but you had to just like remember what you better. had seen. It was just completely like opened up the game, right? I realized that like you just don't need that at all. I was just making it, you know, way more cumbersome on players for really no good reason at all and now i've got like a memory game on my hands <laughs> which
0: is like not what i was going for but it's what it wanted to be and it's more fun and it's a light game and it fits and yeah.
1: once i made that change like subsequent iterations i feel like have been you know i've you know getting closer and closer like yeah. so much more profitable in the changes i've been making where before, it would feel like I would change one thing and it'd be better in some way, but then worse in another way and better, you know, and I'd make another change like better in this other way, but then worse here. And once I made that change, the memory game, I feel like some of the changes I've made have just made it better.
0: Nice. Also, you know, all rules exist to be broken. Some of the best games don't follow any conventional advice, you know, so sometimes you just end up designing something that breaks the rules and that's okay. Yeah. As long as it's fun. Are you having fun with it? You mentioned you found one of the things that's really hard is it's not always hard to like design a functional game, but it's hard to design a fun game. Are you having fun with chicken wild?
1: I'll be honest. Like, I think it's not a hundred percent where I would want it to be yet. I've got good feedback from people that were like, Oh, Oh, i i I think like i would buy this game you know if it was available and i mean that feels great to hear but it's also like my friends and family that i'm playing with so it's hard to trust that information but i think part of playtesting is like me realizing that like i will probably always be like the harshest critic of this game like not only am i you know want to do something really cool and interesting to people but i'm also like you know sit here and review board games with you for like hundreds of hours i don't i don't want to i want to make a game that's like as good as games that i like to play with my friends i don't want to make a game that doesn't reach that bar but i'm recognizing like i'm setting an incredibly high bar for myself when we only play and review like the most widely known, highest rated, like most beloved game in, in this industry and hobby.
0: Yeah, for sure. And not everything game you design will define you as a designer, right? Or like speak for your work alone. And every game's like a, a process towards designing stuff that you're even more excited about, whether it's a game that gets published or doesn't get published. But I think ultimately, I think what you said is really people either fall into one of two camps, either. There's the type of person who like, no matter what, they always have fun with their own games. So they're a terrible judge of if their games are fun because they just love the fact that they made it and they get to play it. And that's great. Some people just that's where they're coming from. And it ends up being really motivating. But I definitely fall into the camp that you do, Jake, where it's sort of like I know when I'm having fun with my own game and I tend to be more critical, which means when there are those special moments where I'm like, oh, this is fun. Mm -hmm. I know what to run towards. And I think that's a really important part of playtesting is I would say trust your instincts. Like ultimately, whatever game you make, is probably going to be to your taste. So you're probably going to be the one who's best at sort of knowing what direction it could go. I think there's exceptions. Chicken Wild might be actually a good example where maybe you're designing a game that's for a more casual audience than you typically play with. And that's great too. That's another type of design skill, you know?
1: Yeah, totally. And it's It is really interesting. Uh, I think the moments that I've had with this game that made me feel like, okay, I'm on to something here. Or like there were a couple of times where I would like learn something about the game, you know, strategy or tactics in a way that I would when I played another game. You know, like you have that moment where you're like, oh, I like now understand this about the game. Uh, And that's really fun and interesting when I was like the one who like designed it, right? Because like designing a game doesn't mean you're going to be the best at like playing it yeah so that i mean and then i was like oh wow okay if i'm like able to have that kind of light bulb moment in the same way in the same feeling that i have in like these other games that i like to play that's like a really good sign yeah 100 yeah. percent.
0: green flag for sure like yeah it feels great when that happens
1: but i don't want to take up all the air talking about just my one silly little prototype like what are some best practices in playtesting i can start talking about some of the things that i've found helpful in some of my playtests but i want to kick it over to you first since you have a lot more experience in this category than me to talk about like you know what are you trying to curate when you go to set up a playtest
0: yeah number one the number one thing that i think is so important that i made them this mistake early on and i don't want people to make the same mistake so i want to mention it is don't waste prototyping. Playtesting time is really limited. It's a valuable, scarce resource. So you have to take the most advantage of it possible, which means don't waste your own time. When you see something not working in a in a playtest, change it. Just create the magic circle with your playtesters, I think, to just be able to be like, this isn't working, we should change the game in this way. And there will be times where socially, maybe that wouldn't be possible, and it depends on the group of people you're playing with, and maybe people are having a ton of fun with the game, and you need to respect the sort of time that your playtesters are having too. But I think far and away, when I sort of sense like, oh, this isn't working, I don't want to test it this way anymore, I, I think it's better to err towards, hey... I'm so appreciative that, you, that you're that you all willing to playtest this game. I'd really like us to try it this way. Could we t- play to try it this way? Or would you be open to playing again, but making this small change? I think it just doesn't make sense to playtest a game in a way it's not working. Like if you see it's not working, just change it right there. Or like if something breaks and you want to keep playtesting, just budget like if if someone gets way too far ahead give everyone resources have them catch up and then play test from that point and then reflect on how that change affected the system and stuff you don't have to treat it like a real play always
1: yeah here's a related question for you that you just maybe think of which is something i've been puzzling over myself in in these iterative play tests is like how much are you willing to change it from play test to play test <laughs> do you ever think like okay i want to try out these like three different things but if i add all three of them together it might you know like isolating yeah, yeah. one variable is that something you think about uh, do you have like a rule of thumb for that
0: totally okay so early on I err towards like, let's just change it as much as possible. Like I'm, I'm going broad and I want to see like, what happens if we do this? What happens if we do this? Let's really change it. And the longer I've playtested the game and the more confident I am in the systems, the closer I get towards like, let's make one change. At most one system change. See what happens. And then if there was another change we want to make, try that. Then maybe try them together. This also comes along with the territory because my most common playtester is Maya Poland, my wife. And Maya has a rule that we only make one change in, in between playtest. So that's that's sort of where where I go, and I think that helps rein in, and it also helps be a useful constraint. Where it's sort of okay if I can only make one change for the next playtest. What's the most important? And I think that can be really helpful. But like early on in design, I find I'll like try sweeping broad different ideas. Let's try a seven card hand. Let's try a two card hand. Not usually two, but you get what I'm saying. Like, let's test the extremes, see which extreme feels better, and then design towards that extreme.
1: Ah, oh, that's a really good
0: idea. Yeah, thank you. So, just like stuff like that. Also, I think this is a question that comes up a lot. Do you play with people, or do you watch people play test?
1: So for me, I've played in all of my play tests of my game except for one, and part of that reason is because it's kind of like a broad, like it's two to five players. It's a high player count game, so yeah. it's like okay, I'll just play two. I did find it helpful to watch. I think I... I think just like removing myself from the play a little bit allowed me to think, s- like see things more globally about the system. Yeah. Like, m- like there's four different actions in my game, and I found that like people were taking the peak action a lot more than the reveal action, and it made after that play test, which is not something I'd picked up on as much when I was playing, more focused on just like my own actions. Yeah. Uh, I was a- I was like, okay, I need to like tune up the reveal powers a little bit to make those just a little bit stronger to incentivize folks to take that risk of like revealing blind a bit more uh so that was that was helpful uh yeah. i think yeah i think you definitely get a different perspective but probably doing both is is ideal
0: definitely and i think there's times too right where if you have the opportunity to play test with a new group it's a game that you've been play testing for a while and you're pretty happy with the direction it's going you feel confident sometimes it can be really beneficial to just have other people play and just watch because assumptions that you've made sort of strategic things that feel like strategic the obvious to you might not be obvious to that group. So that can be really interesting to sort of let the game have a fresh perspective. Whereas if you're sitting and playing people, undoubtedly as the designer will watch you and emulate and think about the decisions you're making with an early play. So I like to do both, but I also would you
1: say like more often you're playing
0: I mean, I like to play games, so right. I, I <laughs> yeah. do more often play. And I think, you know, there's two types of play, there's lots of different types of playtesting. I think early on when you're just trying to create a game that you think is fun, a system that works well, something that's novel, you have to play test to explore, right? Like playtest to push the edges of the system. So I think normally I'll play test a game when I'm playing a game with you for the show I'm playing to win the game and sometimes when i'm playtesting i'm playtesting to broadly understand the system and to explore the different ways that it can push and pull and where it pushes and pulls and where it's the most fun
1: i feel like sometimes you do that when we're okay yeah, yeah. For because the i think it helps also. you
0: learn it helps you learn which is it in both Not places me. I always try to win <laughs> well i'm still doing that but i'm just trying to win in the long run No, I know, I know. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. definitely.
1: I think that's something that people who listen to the show will understand. Like, it's fun to explore different strategies in the game. So, taking that same natural curiosity to your own game, your own playtest makes sense. I'm thinking of like a general ground rule here about playtesting, which is that, you know, we were talking about for prototyping, it's fast and reckless. I think for playtesting, it's like, diversity is key yeah but also like don't hold yourself to too high of a standard yeah. i think i see things online that's like to play test your game you should like not do it with your family you know you should do it with strangers you should uh, not even be in the room right just like get them to solicit feedback you know i think like a blind study has a lot of merit in the academic setting uh, but for like a new first-time play tester like i think that's going to be a really difficult standard to hold yourself to
0: yeah there's like a lot to learn from playtesting your own game most likely you're going to be the person who understands it the best so i think for me at least yes there's a huge benefit for like the potential for a blind playtest but also there's a huge benefit for being able to playtest your game and oftentimes you can only do that if you're going to play with people and that's great and you can also learn by learning your game through playing it that even better uh is what i think
1: i also want to share something that i just picked up from paul and pete when i was playtesting with them and they're both game designers paul has honey buzz Buzz and and some other published games and i think pete has two games under contract Though i don't think he has any that are like at retail yet but anyway we were playtesting pete's game and paul and i were giving some like suggestions about ways things could work slightly differently and pete was very receptive to it and then paul said something that kind of stopped me in my tracks which was like you know but at the end of the day these are all fine and the developer will choose whichever Mm -hmm. version they like best and that made me think like oh that's right like i don't have to have like a perfect final product in order to like start pitching my idea to people because publishers want to develop it right they want to change things to fit better with their line of games and their you know i don't know like presentation and whatnot and i don't know that, that that was kind of like a new perspective to me because i think as like designers and players of games i guess players of games rather than designers you kind of can get into think like Steffenfeld designed this game and that's exactly what i'm playing and maybe that's the case for somebody as established as that but in general a lot has changed between the game that was submitted and the thing that gets to your table.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I also think at the same time, it's you can learn a lot from your game about saying like what's the most the best trade-off between balanced and fun with this element? Like how would I make that decision and get yeah. it to as close as you can? But you also don't have to like ultimately you should only spend time on games that you're enjoying working on it and if it's a goal of yours, that you think it will be get published, and there's like a trade off at some point where it's like you can too finely sand away the statue, you know, and be so obsessed with the little element. Where at least I've done this, where I've worked on a prototype a ton and I've sort of really refined it, and I've for the systems in the game that's there, it's I'm so happy with it. But the problem is, is that ostensibly no one else is, and no one wants to publish it. So. <sighs> If my goal is to get games published, it's not in my best interest to spend a lot of time thinking about more development type issues with that game because no one's biting on it. So I should probably be investing my energy in thinking about the core systems and the game overall rather than these kind of like more development type design decisions. And it's a spectrum from design to development, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, I think what you said too about knowing what your goal is yeah. is really important. That's what I'm trying to design from as well like my goal is to get a board game published sure whereas somebody else might not somebody else might be like i'm you know designing this game because it's exactly the game that i want to play with, my, with friends. my friends and more power to you and they're you like know? yeah that's a
0: great reason to design a game
1: yeah like you should definitely do that uh and in which case yeah like you know finding the preference like the best possible solution between two Different scoring things that both work well. Yeah, you should spend a lot of time figuring out that perfect
0: thing. And you can tailor it to your group.
1: Yeah. But if you're just trying to get your game published, you know, I think that's what Paul was trying to get out. It's like, if it's a coin, these are all kind of like good ideas that probably work relatively well. Is it like worth, you know, going back to like time being present? Like, is it worth your time to figure out like right now which is like exactly best? Or is it enough to say, like, this works well. And, like, when you go into that meeting with a publisher or whatever, like, you have in your back pocket, like, you know, we're also kind of thinking about this. If, if yeah. like, you know, if, if you want to go in, like, maybe a more, like, accessible direction versus, like, a more Strate- yeah. f- strategic, right? For, right. like, the heart gaming enthusiast. I think that might be a line that a lot of these kind of uh, small development decisions come down on. Yeah. I felt that in my own game, at least.
0: Totally. No, I think that's a great observation, Jake. I one thing that I think is part of the cycle invariably, right? You sit, you play test the game. Everyone has given you their time very graciously, and oftentimes you want to hear their feedback uh, and you want to hear people's ideas and their how the, their experience of the game that they played. Uh, and I found that that's a really great important part of the process, but. What I value almost as much as what people say after the fact, which I like to take with a grain of salt, is I just like to watch humans play my game. Like watching people play your game and how their their body language, what it's saying, what they're verbalizing, where their eyes go, what their hands are doing, all of these things can tell you a lot about how the playtest is going. And it might be contrary to what they're saying. Also, there's some, some games... There's going to be some people say like, oh, if people look at their phone during your playtest, it's a bad playtest. It's over. I don't think that's true. I think it kind of depends on the game. There's some games with longer thinky turns where if, if you can just watch the person having their turn, if they're having the best time of their life and and you have fun and the feedback at the end is that was awesome but a lot of people were kind of like distracted on other people's turns maybe that's okay it just depends on the game and what your goals for it are and maybe you can say oh that's a i want people to be a little bit more engaged than they were what can i do to sort of move in that direction but overall i think it's just so important to equalize the feedback you receive and the feedback that you see
1: yeah it's i think that's a great point and you know i I've heard other people talk about receiving feedback on their game too. And like a lot of the feedback being like
0: trust problems, not solutions.
1: Oh, I was going to say like, you know, uh, like yeah like it's cool but like i think you should have like better components it's like well yeah this is paper yeah (laughs) you know you you know or like this is or like better illustrations like yeah i know like this is like clip art or whatever um so there will be better art presumably in the finished copy i did creative writing minor in school and that was kind of the same deal there you go around the room and everybody is critiquing your story and and there would whenever i would have my turn everybody's read my story i'm like there is a lot of things People would say that I thought was really smart and I would good and bad that I would hold on to. And there were other comments that were made. And it was just coming from like a different perspective or whatever than what i was going for that that would just go right into my guard you know i'm just not gonna let that take up space in my brain because that's just not the type of feedback i was looking for
0: and maybe the person giving feedback is someone who really likes writing fairy tales and what you're trying to write is is not that type of story and a lot of their feedback looks to solve problems that they perceive in your story with a fairy tale framework and i think A similar thing will happen in game design sometimes where someone has a neural, they're sort of like their brain is used to solving a problem in this way. They see a problem as a player, they experience it maybe, and they say, oh, I know the perfect way for you to solve this problem. And oftentimes I think it's really important to trust like. When someone identifies a problem, but not often not important to take their exact solution to take a step back, think about what solution would fit the system overall, the game overall, etc. And also sometimes we just think when we lose is a problem, and that's one of the things that makes our playtest feedback unreliable. Sometimes is our experience through randomness and all these different types of things can give us not perfect perceptions. So it's important to to not take to weight any one playtest too strongly, which for long games can be a problem. So I just want to give one other piece of advice. If you have a long game, it's totally valid, reasonable, important to just play test a part of it. If you only have a set point in time, we talked about how important feedback is. If what you can't get to work is the final third of your game, you don't have to make people play the first two thirds of the game. You can go to a play test, set up a scenario on the board as if it was the first two thirds of the game, give player A whatever cards, resources, et cetera, that you want them to have in this Late game scenario, B, do the same for player B, do the same for player C, and play test the final third of the game. And just do that three times. That's so much more time efficient. It's fine. Once you've come up with a solution that works, play the whole thing and it will work.
1: Yeah. W- one other thing, kind of the last thing I want to talk about, which is something that's become really clear to me in my play test my game, is that you're not going to make everybody happy. Yeah, definitely. And I think that. That's something I'm struggling with now is like, how much do I want to kind of push for the common denominator and like capture as much of like that Venn diagram between my gaming group and my parents and my wife's parents and my kickball team as possible? Or do I want to like push more towards the, what one of those specific groups wants and my example is like playing this game with my family. They're like, this is super fun. You should add in event cards to make it more chaotic and random where, you know, you're basically collecting sets of chickens and they wanted like a tornado card that meant like everybody has to like pass one of their chickens to the right, which is fun. Right. And, and chaotic. When I played the same exact game with my like Monday night gaming group, who's basically willing to play it. They're like, this is fun, but it feels like a little random. Yeah. You know, so so like exact opposite feedback when I played with my kickball team, which is kind of like more casual gamers, you know what? I noticed one of the guys in particular, uh, my friend Simon, kind of seemed frustrated in the play. And I talked to him afterwards and he was saying, well, I was like trying to like line up combos with the cards and it was a five player game and somebody would like mess it up or take a row before it came back to me. And then later we were, we were playing and hanging out at a bar. I was talking to him about how games he's played in the past. It turns out he was like really into like competitive Yu-Gi-Oh when he was younger mm. coming from such a specific perspective of card games. Uh And it makes sense. Like, you you know, the Yu-Gi-Oh players trying to like play chicken wild as like a johnny (laughs) it's not really like set up that way yeah yeah so clearly i'm not going to appeal to all these folks so now i'm just trying to think about who to appeal for because i think i'm thinking of two very different directions from this game the strategy board game version and the more mass market version
0: sometimes it's better to end with someone else's brilliant thought than your own so i'll just add jake that mark rosewater magic gathering designer for the last 20 years who's like created the modern version of the game always says it's better for people to love your game for some people to love your game and some people to hate your game than for everyone to just kind of think your game's fine so i think that's kind of goes along with what you're saying you just have to decide who should love your game and who should hate your game
1: got it not going for the common don't try and go for the common denominator and i feel bad I think that's really helpful, but I think like, I think that's kind of maybe where my game is living right now, Yeah, where it's like, I want to be able to play it with Bridget's parents who just were visiting and we played it and they're like, activate a card. Like, (laughs) what does that mean? Uh, That was helpful, right? Because I'm like, oh, like any board gamer would understand that means like trigger the ability on one of the cards. Yep. But they did not know that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that is is awesome. I feel like this has been a really good conversation, Jake. So thanks for having it with me. Definitely a good idea. We did prototyping and playtesting together. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. So if you want to connect with us and continue this conversation, tell us what you do to prototype and playtest or give thoughts on our process. You can find us uh, at decisionspacepodcast.com, where you'll also find a link to our Discord, which is where you can actually have those conversations and also follow us on Instagram. You can just tell us on Instagram, which is great too.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the best kind of channels in our discord is the design space channel where you have people you know troubleshooting sharing ideas about the games that they're designing and working on and you have other designers like brendan and seth jaffe of uh who designed eminent domain who are in there talking helping people out uh, and getting inspiration and insight for their own design so if you are working on a game design at all or have any aspiration to do that that's just a really fantastic resource uh to cut it up with some other people in your
0: shoes next week we're gonna talk about the 10 top 10 games we've played in 2023 so far uh, and then more exciting things on the horizon but until next time thank you to hembry for our intro and outro song reach out bye y'all bye (laughs)